The word of God reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, my son, Jack, really has no concept of waiting. And maybe I should cut him some slack because he's just a little over six weeks old. Uh, But when he's hungry or when he has a dirty diaper or when he's uncomfortable, there is no gentle cry of, hey, dad, if you get a second, maybe you can help me out here. There is only the cry of an uncaged banshee that says, help me right now. And I expect that when he gets older, that's... That might change a little bit, but it'll just come in different forms, right? He'll want the toy right now. He'll want to play on the playground right now. He'll want to eat the dessert right now. He won't care that something will be better if he just waits a little bit longer. No, he'll want it now. And then when he gets older than that, when he becomes an adult, this still really won't change. It'll just come in different forms. He'll want to get through the line now. He'll want to get through the traffic jam. Now. He'll want the job and the house and the wife and the marriage. Now. Hardwired into his heart is the mantra sung by Queen. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. Now, I'll grant you, sometimes delay is a bad thing. Elizabeth Elliot famously said that delayed obedience is disobedience. And you can add justice to that. Delayed justice is injustice, right? For example, you and I have the right to a speedy and fair trial. But friends, it takes a lifetime of learning to to learn that delay is often a good thing. In the opening part of John chapter 11, we get to see how Jesus responds to his friend being sick. And in this passage, Jesus is teaching you and I more than the virtue of patience in general. Jesus is teaching you and me the virtue of waiting on him. Because if Jesus operates on yours and mine's timeline, we would miss out on his bigger and better purposes for our lives. Jesus wants to teach you to trust him. He wants to show you what he shows people, all the people involved in this account. It's perhaps the main point of this portion of the Bible that we're in today. That the greatest times of desperation 
are the, usually are the greatest displays of the Lord's wisdom, love, and power. The greatest times of desperation are the greatest displays of the Lord's wisdom, love, and power. We're gonna journey through this passage by seeing how the spotlight sort of switches from character to character. So first, we're gonna look at the desperate sisters. Then we'll look at the deliberate savior. And finally, the disoriented disciples. Now, through this portion of God's words, my prayer for you this morning that the Lord builds your trust in him. So if you're in a desperate situation, I want you to know that you can trust him there. And if you're not feeling desperate this morning, well, I trust that one day, maybe soon, you will feel very desperate and you can trust God there. If it feels like your life is in some type of delay, I want you to know that you can trust God there. If you're facing some type of danger, even this morning, I want you to know that you can trust God there also. Well, let's look at each one of the characters involved in this opening scene of John 11. Let's begin with the desperate sisters. Here we're looking at just verses one through three, like that first paragraph. So here we see Mary and Martha send word to Jesus about their brother, Lazarus, who they say is sick. John tells us later in chapter 11, verse 18, that all of these lived in a village that was about two miles away from the city of Jerusalem, a village called Bethany. Now, at the end of chapter 10, where we left off last week, we're told that Jesus was beyond the Jordan River. This likely would have been an area that was a little over 90 miles away from this village of Bethany. Now, from the way John introduces us to this family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, it's pretty clear that Jesus has an established relationship with these three. John says that Mary is the one who anointed Jesus' feet. And interestingly, John doesn't record this for us until chapter 12, the next chapter. Right, it's, it's not unusual that an author withholds details to keep us reading. Right, so here they are, Martha and Mary. They have a sick brother and they know Jesus. And so they do what any sensible Christian would do. They tell Jesus about what's going on. So here we are. This, that's the lay of the land in verses one to three. It, it appears pretty straightforward. But within this desperate situation, friends, I think you can gain three insights. I think you can get an insight into illness, an insight into prayer, and an insight into Jesus's heart. It opens simply stating, a certain man, Lazarus, was ill. Just from these three verses, you can get an insight into thinking well about illness. And it's just natural to think when I was reading this passage, I, I look out at this room and look out at the people who even aren't in this room, and I know that some of you are ill. Some of us battle long-term, ongoing, very difficult illness in this very church. There's multiple sclerosis. There is kidney disease in this church. There's liver disease in this church. There's cancer. And if those diseases don't describe you, can you be so sure that they won't describe you one day? So the question for you is, what are you going to hang on to one day? God forbid that you're sitting alone in that chemo chair for hours. What are you going to hang on to in those moments? How are you going to make sense of it all when it's yet another restless, sleepless night in pain, maybe even in the hospital? If you don't know those experiences firsthand, maybe you know those experiences secondhand, and you know just how lonely and dark of places that those can be. Now, this isn't all we can say about illness from the Bible. It's not even all we can say from this passage. But even these first three verses of John 11 can give you an insight to think well about illness. And it's how Lazarus is described. 
Take a, take a look at how he's first described in verse one. He says, he is a man who is ill. And then take a look at how he's next described in verse three. He is a man who is loved and loved by Jesus, no less. Now, I know this sounds so simple, but I think we get into trouble because deep down, you and I think that these two truths can't go together. That if I'm ill, then I must not be loved And that if I'm loved, then that means I won't get ill. What the Bible's telling you right here is that these two truths are compatible. Lazarus is a man who is ill, but he's also a man who is loved. I've seen this play out in people who battle serious illness because serious illness will sideline you for a long time. It'll take you away from your routine. It'll make you inactive and pretty soon your own flesh, maybe even the devil, will whisper in your ear that your illness makes you useless. But when you look to the scripture, you'll find that our Lord isn't a utilitarian. He doesn't love people based on how useful they are. No, he he gives grace. None of us have earned his love by our usefulness. Just look at Lazarus himself. Lazarus is on his deathbed. And yet he is a man whom the Lord loves within their desperate situation, laid out just in these first three verses, you can get insights. You can get an insight here into Jesus's heart. Did you notice something unusual about how this scene opens in comparison to other scenes in the Gospel of John? I think back to John chapter four. John doesn't tell us the name of the Samaritan woman at the well. Or I think to John chapter five. John doesn't tell us the name of the paralyzed man who couldn't walk for 38 years. Or I think back to chapter nine. John doesn't tell us the name of the man who was born blind, but was healed. But here in chapter 11, we get three specific names. That stands out to me. You know, everywhere Jesus went, he seems to have drawn crowds, big crowds, like even thousands of people come to hear Jesus teach and really wherever he went. And not only does the fame not get to Jesus's head, but neither does it make him impersonal. Jesus knows names. And would we expect anything less from one who describes himself as the good shepherd who calls out his own sheep by name? But it's more than Jesus just has a good memory. We get the names of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and John tells us that Jesus loved each one of them. It's not just that he knew of them, but that he was close to them. This is Jesus's heart. And Jesus's heart is an example to you and to me. You know, it seems that Jesus got close to this family because he spent a lot of time with this family. This family let Jesus stay in their home. This this family shared meals with Jesus. They sat under his feet and heard his teaching. Now, while we don't get to see everything about their relationship, it's clear that Jesus does have an established relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I think that we can apply this in a lot of ways, but I wonder if you realize this means at least something that in all the busyness of Jesus's life, and Jesus is more busy than you are, he actually took time to spend with friends. After all, later he calls Lazarus our friend. This is just really simple, but brother and sister, do you have close friends? It's been observed by many that in our current moment, there is an epidemic of friendlessness especially among men. Guys, do you have close friends? Do you have good Christian friendships? 
I mean, if it was valuable to Jesus, shouldn't it be valuable to you? I, I would just encourage you to pray and prioritize to that end of building good Christian friendships. Jesus' heart is an example to us. It's an example to us in another way, too, that his love has depth to it and it has breadth to it. It's deep and it's wide. This is something that I encourage all the members of West Creek who are coming into the church. How appropriate that that's happening today. Jesus' love extends to a wide range of people. This passage tells us he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loves Mary, who's sincere. He loves Martha, who's a busybody. Later on, John describes himself as the, as the disciple who Jesus loved. He loves the tender-hearted John. Later on in Galatians 2.20, the apostle Paul describes himself as Christ who loves me. He loves Paul, who's a little bit brash. The people who Jesus loves don't fit into just one single mold. Yeah, they might share the traits that they have repented of their sin and trusted in him, but they aren't all carbon copies. Jesus loves a wide breadth of people, and he loves that wide breadth of people deeply. In fact, in the deepest way possible, that he gives up his life for them. Christian, you're called to reflect your Lord and Savior. Your love should be deep and wide. The types of people you love, especially here in this church, shouldn't all fit the same mold. And the type of love you have for others, especially in the church, shouldn't be timid. It shouldn't be shallow. It should be deep and sacrificial. We're looking just at these first three verses. And in their desperate situation, we say we can get insights into several different things. You can get an insight into illness, how to think well about it. You can get an insight into Jesus's heart. And looking at just these first three verses, you can get an insight into prayer. Notice the report that they send to Jesus. They say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Before we even deal with the substance of that statement, I can't help but notice who says this. Do you see who God uses to prompt this incredible scene that's been recorded and encapsulated us in the Bible forever? Who does God use? He uses the simple prayer of two faithful women. My Christian sisters, I know that some of you are deeply committed to praying. Please do not give up. Now notice, let's just look at this statement though. Lord, he whom you love is ill. The first thing I think about with this statement is that it's just not very eloquent, right? It's almost like they're in such a desperate situation that this is all that they can muster to say. And it makes me think that I think this is just deeply encouraging. I, I've heard some of you tell me, yes, Steve, I just, I'm not that comfortable praying with other people, especially I'm not that comfortable praying in public. But I hear how other people pray in public and it's like, I just think I can never pray like that. I don't pray as good as them. I stumble over my words. I never know what to say. Well, first off, my friend, let me encourage you. You can grow in your prayers. But secondly, do you really think that God is up there with a pen and paper grading the quality of your prayers, waiting for you to say the exact right phrase and use the exact right tone before he answers your prayer. That would make prayer more like a magic spell or an incantation. No, 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 my friend, God cares first that you come to him and come to him with faith. Look at this prayer. It's weak, it's simple, but it contains faith in what they know to be true. They know, Mary and Martha know that Jesus cares for Lazarus. They know that Jesus loves him. 
And by telling Jesus about Lazarus's illness, they indicate that they be- we believe, Jesus, you're able to do something about it. Here's a good foundation for your prayer life. Lord, I know you care about me. I know you love me. And I know you can do something about what's going on right now. Friends, that's a good foundation for prayer. But their faith, Mary and Martha's faith, it's displayed in another way also. Look at this statement. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Does that really sound like a prayer request? It doesn't. It doesn't read much like a request. It sounds more like a report. There's no demand here. They don't treat Jesus like a genie in a bottle. They bring their burden to Jesus and they lay it at his feet. Oh, brother and sister, in your desperate situation, in your every situation, there is no better friend to turn to than Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All your sins and all your griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So we see the desperate sisters, how Jesus proves trustworthy in the desperate situations. Next, let's look at verses four through six, and we'll see the deliberate Savior. Now, when Jesus first hears the news about Lazarus, he says that this illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through, through it. A couple things to note here. You might think that Jesus is wrong because Lazarus does end up dying. But the point is that the point Jesus is trying to make is that Lazarus won't, isn't that Lazarus won't die, it's that Lazarus won't stay dead. Another thing to notice, again, is that the Father and the Son are distinct but equal. As Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17 shows us, the Father and the Son are mutually committed to giving each other glory. We talked more about Jesus' identity last week. Now, those are things that just are on the periphery of what Jesus says. The center of his statement is that this illness is for the glory of God. Again, I think this is just extremely practical because when you ask somebody, how can I pray for you? When you, after a Bible study or community group, we take prayer requests. 99 times out of 100, what is the substance of those prayer requests? Somebody's sick and someone needs help, right? That's, that's what we pray about, even in our prayer chain on Tuesday afternoons and throughout the day Tuesday. Most of those requests are about people being sick. So my friend, what does this passage teach you about how to pray for someone who's sick? Now, let me just say, it's good, it's right, it's biblical to pray that the Lord would heal them. I'm thinking of James 5, 16, which says, pray for one another that you might be healed. But according to Jesus right here, there is a better outcome than healing. According to Jesus here, there's a higher priority than sickness going away. Don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. It's just not the best thing. It's not the most important thing. The best thing, the most important thing is the glory of God. And Lazarus's healing was the means, not the end. So for Jesus, the most important outcome of the scene that's about to unfold isn't that his friend would be raised up. The most important outcome of the scene that's about to unfold is that God would be glorified that God would receive praise and honor that he alone deserves. My friend, how do you pray for those who are sick, even yourself? You pray that God would be glorified, that it would be evident from how this works out, that he would receive praise and honor that he alone deserves. Make that your highest priority. That's Jesus's. But Jesus' statement here might leave you wondering, like it leaves me wondering, can God be glorified in an illness 
that does lead to death? Can God be praised in an outcome that doesn't end with healing? I say, of course he can. It may be God's design for you to, uh, to get glory, not from your healing, but by sustaining you. That's what we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 12. It may be God's design in your life to demonstrate through you that having him is better than having health. That might be his design. You know, it's been his design uh, for uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her, who lost the ability of moving her arms and legs in a diving accident when she was 17, who afterwards was very bitter against God for allowing this to happen. But over the course of her many years afterwards, she's developed this incredible ministry. And imagine if God had healed Johnny instead of sustaining her. Of course, he, he would have gotten glory. That just wasn't his design. It's not always that God will heal. Sometimes he'll get glory by sustaining. So you might be left wondering, can a death bring glory to God? Friends, isn't that the heart of the gospel that we believe? That Christ died the death we deserve so that we would be forgiven and have the sting of death removed? This is where God's love and justice and mercy and grace are most clearly on display. So Jesus' highest priority is the glory of God. But as we keep going into verse 5 and verse 6, even though this is Jesus' highest priority, the glory of God, that doesn't mean that he's indifferent to people. But look at how he's, it's described. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Because you don't have to worry that when you pray that uh, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, you don't have to worry that this is going to always turn out to, for your bad, but it'll always turn out for your good. The outcome that will bring God glory is the outcome that will bring the most good to people. Right after Jesus expresses his desire for God to be glorified, we're reminded in verse five that he loves this family. Now, perhaps in our entire passage, one word that sticks out to me the most is the first word in verse six, that little word, so. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It was Jesus' love for this family that led him to delay going to this family. Now, how does that work? Because that, initially, that just doesn't make sense. That, it'd be like you and me seeing a building on fire with people we know in it and refusing to go in instead of rushing in. Now, just to qualify it a little bit, to remind you, Jesus and his disciples are something like 90 miles away. That's at least a four-day journey if they're at a good pace. So even if Jesus had left right away, he wouldn't have made it. But still, how can this delay come from a place of love? Well, we'll see again later next week. If Jesus had come any sooner, people could have explained away what Jesus did. They could have said, it. Hey, Lazarus really was just asleep and Jesus only just woke him up. But try laying out a corpse for four days and you'll see what I mean. No one would have been able to mistake what Jesus actually did. So Jesus' delay, though it was hard, was actually good for everyone involved. For the sisters, for the disciples, Jesus would be realer to them than ever before. Their faith in him would be solidified. It would be confirmed. For Lazarus, this guy was dead and now he gets to be alive. <laughs> All this good would happen because Jesus delayed. 
So a couple questions for you. I wonder if you've ever considered that you're not Mary or Martha in the story, but that you might be Lazarus. Meaning, have you ever thought that God has allowed something hard to happen in your life, not just for your own good, but maybe even for the good of other people, the people around you? Have you ever thought, uh, Christian, do you believe that the Lord loves you, even loves you enough not to give you what you want, <laughs> or even what you need immediately. When you are in a desperate, seemingly hopeful, hopeless situation, Jesus, it says Jesus delays two days. When you're in a desperate, seemingly hopeless situation, two days can feel like two lifetimes. And some of you have lived a lot of lifetimes. And in that delay, you will feel like you're in the dark. You will cry out with the psalmist, like they often do. Those in the Psalms who say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, how long is this going to go on? Well, we're saying in this passage in John 11, even in the delay, you can trust him. You see, you might be viewing, if you're in a, you feel like the Lord has delayed coming into your life, you might be viewing that delay as evidence that he doesn't love you. But John chapter 11, verses five and six reminds you that sometimes the Lord delays precisely because he does love you. So wait on the Lord, friends. The longer the delay, the sweeter the deliverance. The old song puts it like this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Finally, we come to the disoriented disciples. We're looking at verses 7 through 16. Now, the opening scene of chapter 11 closes with Jesus telling his plan to his disciples. And maybe unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with this crew, the disciples aren't exactly receptive to the Lord's plan. We might summarize their response with three different questions. They essentially ask Jesus, Jesus, why would you take this risk? Jesus, why can't Lazarus just help himself? And Jesus, why must we go with you? When Jesus tells them of his plan to go to Judea, which is the region where Bethany is, the disciples attempt to give him a little bit of a history lesson. Need we remind you, Jesus, that the people who live there have tried to stone you not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus, why take this risk to go back to that place? You could hear that same question. Why take that risk? You could hear that same question being asked to the missionaries that we support. Look at the countries you want to go to in the Middle East or in West Africa. Look at the state of those countries. Why take the risk of going there? Look at what you're going to have to give up. Look at what you're going to have to sacrifice for your family, for your children. Why take that risk? You can hear yourself ask that same question when you think about speaking of faith in Christ to someone who doesn't know him. You ask yourself, why should I take this risk? Why take the risk of getting this person upset? Why take the risk of affecting the relationship I have with this person? Why take the risk of being outed as this weird religious person? You can hear yourself ask this question. Why take the risk when there's a wrong that you need to address? Why take the risk of a hard conversation? Maybe if I ignore it, then it'll just go away. Now, hear me saying there's a difference between taking appropriate risk and being wrongfully reckless. But in all these scenarios, avoiding risk 
means that you are trying to preserve your own comfort and safety above the good of other people. Preserving your own comfort and safety above the good of other people. And taking risk means that you put the good of others above your own comfort and safety. Isn't that the heart of true love? You're putting the need of others above your own? Isn't that the heart of what Jesus does for us? Sacrifices his own comfort and safety for the good of us? So for Jesus, why take the risk of going back to a place where people have tried to kill him? Well, he answers in verses 9 and 10. And the answer applies to himself. It applies to his disciple. His answer in verses 9 and 10 reflects a little bit what Jesus has said previously. Previously, Jesus has said that there is an hour, a specific time in the Father's plan that culminates in his death and in his resurrection. And he has said that until that hour comes, he's to continue in his earthly ministry. So verses 9 to 10, Jesus tells us what is really the true path of safety. Just as you are safer when you walk on a journey outdoors in the light, so you are safer when you walk in the light of God's will than in the darkness of your own plan and your own preferences. Notice here in verses 9 and 10, Jesus' highest priority isn't to preserve himself. His highest priority is to obey his Father's will. Jesus, the light of the world, walks in the light of God's will. And the question for his disciples is, will they walk where he walks? Friend, the best place to be isn't where you think is best. The best place to be is being close to the Lord. The safest place to be is the center of God's will. That's what Betsy Ten Boom would say all the time. Even when they were hiding Jews during the uprising of the Nazi empire in the middle of Holland. There's one stirring scene from that book, The Hiding Place, where the SS come to look and look throughout their house, see if they're hiding any people. And Betsy's determined to follow God's will because she knows God's will is for her to tell the truth and not to tell a lie. And so they press her, hey, where are the, where are the Jews that you're hiding? And she says, they're hiding underneath the table. And unbeknownst, that's the truth. Unbeknownst to them, though, they don't see anything under the table, but there's actually a compartment underneath the table. And the SS officers leave. Now, it doesn't mean that anything, nothing bad happened to Betsy later on, but it does mean just proving the point that the safest place to be is following God's will. Verse 11, Jesus likens Lazarus' death to sleep. Like it's happened before, the disciples take a symbolic statement and think Jesus is making a literal statement. So again, they wonder why Jesus, if Lazarus is just sleeping, then why does he need your help? Why do we need to go and see him? Another way to state verse 12, Jesus, why can't Lazarus help himself? And maybe this is a question that you ask when you think about Christianity. Maybe it's a question that you ask when you think about Jesus or the Bible or just organized religion in general. You might ask a form of the question, why can't I just help myself? Why can't I just be a kind and decent person? Well, my friend, what's true about Lazarus physically is true about you spiritually. Jesus knows that Lazarus has died. And the Bible says that you and I are dead in our transgression and sin. Dead people can't help themselves. So if you and I have any hope, it's only if Jesus does for us what he did for Lazarus. He says, I go to awaken him. My friend, the author of life has come down to give you life by laying down his life. 
And the call for you is to no longer trust in how you can help yourself, but to trust in him. You know, maybe you've heard it say, uh, people say that uh, God helps those who help themselves. Maybe you've said that before too. It's well-intended. But the truth of the Bible, and especially what John 11 tells you, is that Jesus helps those who know they can't help themselves, but go to him. Maybe this can be your prayer. This is a song we often sing. It goes like this. Lord, there's no humble dress. There's no fervent prayer. There's no lifted hands. There's no tearful song. There's no recitation of the truth that can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus's life. My debt was paid by Jesus's death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. Why don't you make that prayer your own today, my friend? Finally, Jesus tells them the other part of his plan when it comes to Lazarus. Jesus confirms what he kind of hinted at earlier. He tells them, I'm not going to be traveling solo. You guys are coming with me. Now, the only reaction we get to this comes from Thomas. And because of other things that Thomas will say, we assume that what Thomas says here is entirely negative. But in verse 16, just at face value, Thomas is rallying the troops. He's talking to the rest of the disciples. They need spurring on. So maybe we can go behind the scenes a little bit. It's almost like when the disciples heard Jesus's plan, they didn't say, Lord, we're with you on this. We got you. We got your back. It's probably closer to them saying, Lord, do we really have to? Jesus, you know, it was all well and good when we followed you through different parts of Galilee and, you know, we heard you teach, we watched you do miracles and a lot of people showed up. But, you know, Jesus, this is getting intense. We didn't sign up for this like we're saying they're saying jesus we'll follow you but we have our limits but then here comes thomas and on the one hand thomas forgets what jesus has just said and jesus has said they'll be just fine if they stick close to him but maybe a better tactic for thomas could have been guys i don't know what's going to happen when we go to bethany but you know what jesus has given us every reason to trust him so we need to go on the other hand thomas does understand what it means to be a follower of jesus What Jesus said in Mark 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to Bethany and they're coming with him, he doesn't say they'll keep them from danger. But Jesus says that he will preserve them in danger. There's a difference between those things. Jesus is glad for the good that will come about in them from what they will see when they go with him to a dangerous place. Their faith in him will be strengthened. They'll get to have a clearer view of who he is. Again, it reminds me of what we sing often. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So friend, has the Lord brought you to a place in your life that puzzles you, that perplexes you? A place in your life where you feel desperate? A place in your life where you feel it's delayed? Like, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? A place in your life where you're worried about danger that's in front of you? In all of these places, your Savior can be trusted. He hasn't removed his love. He hasn't abandoned his wise purposes. Even in a desperate and delayed and dangerous moment, God can get glory. And I know this not just from this scene with Lazarus, I know this because of Jesus himself. Was there ever a greater desperation than Jesus's cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Was there ever a greater delay that felt more like a lifetime than when Jesus' own body went in the tomb for three days? And yet Jesus stepped right into that danger, obeying his Father's will for you. The cross of Jesus is the greatest desperation and danger that's ever been known. But it led to the greatest display of wisdom, power, and love that's ever been seen. So you, my friend, have every reason to trust Christ in a desperate and delayed and dangerous moment because he he entered it himself and he emerged victorious. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, how we trust you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Please be near us in the fire, Lord. Preserve our faith in it. Lord, we can't help ourselves, but we praise you that you have come to help us laying down your life and taking it up again. Help us to trust your good purposes even when we can't see them. Help us to hold on to what we can see, that you have entered the darkness yourself. You have endured the shame. You have borne the wrath. You are buried in the tomb and you emerge victorious. When we are in the dark, help us to remember your love displayed at the cross and the empty tomb. And if anyone hasn't done that, would they do that for the first time today? Would you draw them out to yourself? And would you strengthen each one of us here? We pray in your name, amen.